This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We're going to turn together uh, back again to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you have a Bible, which I highly recommend that you do, you can follow along and listen to what God is saying to all of us today through his holy and inspired word, the voice of Jesus. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, where Paul writes, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if, if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I don't think I'm in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Does Christianity merely help us to achieve the goals of this world? To more efficiently, more effectively grasp onto what everyone else is pursuing? Or does the Christian faith challenge us to something quite different, quite radical, a different life entirely? And you would think, since the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross, a brutal symbol, a stake of humiliation, of torture, of extermination. You would think that since the Christian symbol is the cross, the answer to that question 
should be obvious because there can be no compromise between the cross and the world. And the only way to be faithful to Jesus, the cross tells us, is to join him outside the camp, to bear the shame of rejection with him, to take our own cross on our shoulders and follow him. That, you would think, would be the message of the cross, but throughout Christian history, there have always been powerful and persuasive voices offering an easier path, a more alluring path. They shave down and smooth down the rough edges of the cross, and they offer ways for Christianity to be compatible with society, to be kind of chaplain to the desires of this world, and in fact, even help us baptize those worldly desires, and even to pursue those selfish cravings more effectively and more powerfully than we could without Jesus and the Spirit. In fact, they've come back from the focus groups, and and frankly, the words cross, shame, rejection, and death, they, they simply do not market well. And our target audience is looking for something with a bit, more, a bit more oomph and pizzazz, some more bounce to it. We want something more inspirational, more uplifting, something more immediately helpful, something that will allow us to achieve our dreams. And surely with, with a little marketing, a little advertising, a little more intelligent repackaging, We can offer the gospel to the mass consumer. And we could really make a ton of sales. I mean, converts. We could really pull people in. And these were the kind of voices that seemed to have shown up in Corinth very soon after the apostle left. He had founded that church. He'd led men and women to Jesus. And now are these these new men and women in the church. These people... This chapter calls the super apostles, presumably not the name these people gave themselves, but a name, a new word that Paul has come up with them, a sarcastic nickname, playing on these people's pretension to power and glory and magnificence. And these people's desire was to take the ship, to seize the church for themselves, to build their own following and actually pull the Corinthian church away from their faithful apostle, their father in the faith, and take it in their own direction for their own reasons. And quite frankly, the whole offering of the super apostles on their table before them was a lot more appealing than what Paul had shown up with. These guys were more put together, more professional, more organized, more exciting and more inspiring than what Paul was offering. And the super apostle's message was perfectly targeted for the city of Corinth. A vast, sprawling, growing metropolis, a city of trade with ports on the east and the west, full of foreigners and expats and business people and professionals, 
swarming with upwardly mobile people, jostling for a place in society, fighting for status and prestige. You know what was so cool about the super apostles? Was that they reawakened in the Corinthian church these deep aspirations for money, for status, for power, those things that Paul had told them to lay aside for the sake of Jesus. But now these super apostles are saying, no, 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 you don't have to do that. It's all compatible. Jesus will help you achieve these things. The power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit will allow you to claim things in prayer, to seize for yourselves all those things your neighbors have that you so desperately wish you could give for your own family. Not, of course, that this was necessarily said in so many words. In fact, I doubt very much whether there was anything blatantly heretical about the super-apostles. And I say that because although Paul certainly takes these people down as agents of Satan, he says some very harsh things to them, never once does Paul say, here is the false teaching and here is why it is wrong. Paul had no trouble doing that in Galatia and in Colossae with the false teachers there. He explicitly explained how the gospel was contrary to those false teachings. And if the Corinthians were being deceived by a false teaching, then surely it was the obligation of Paul to come and say, no, this is wrong, and here is exactly why, and here is how the gospel disproves all that stuff. And yet, strangely, despite quite violently attacking these men and perhaps women as false teachers and agents of the devil, Paul does not address the contents of their teaching. And I suppose, on paper, the teaching was all perfectly orthodox. There was nothing even the most strict and stringent apostle could look through and critique anything on paper. I'm guessing it wasn't so much what they said, but how they said it that was deeply disturbing to Paul. It wasn't so much the substance, but the style. You've ever shown up to a church, you check it out online, and you read the statement of faith, and yeah, everything seems to be correct. And then you show up, and there's just something really off about the place, something, something quite weird about it, and they're not denying any doctrine. They don't really talk about doctrine very much at all, to be honest. There's nothing technically wrong about it, but the whole spirit of the place seems very different from the spirit of Jesus. Like a whitewashed tomb, bustling with artificial life, but lacking the presence of Christ. And as we go on and we learn more about these super apostles in the next couple chapters, we'll see that they seem to have been teachers who served the gospel faithfully with their lips, but with their manner and their lifestyle, they utterly denied Jesus. Now, keep in mind, Paul was the one who had planted this church. He'd gone into the marketplace. He'd gone into people's homes. He'd shared the gospel with people. He'd led them to Jesus. He'd held them by the hand as they'd taken their first baby steps 
of faith. He'd nourished them. He'd made them strong. He'd stayed up with them on sleepless nights as they grew in their faith in Jesus. And for Paul, all this cultivation, all this nourishment, all this parenting has a goal that he's working towards. In the opening verses of our chapter, Paul pictures himself as a Jewish father of the bride getting his beautiful daughter ready for her, for her marriage. And for Paul, the end of his ministry, the terminus point when he hands in his badge and his keys, is not when he moves on from Corinth or Ephesus or Antioch to another church. The end of Paul's ministry is the eschatological wedding, the day of the Lord when he takes this church, all the churches by the hand, and leads them to Jesus as the pure and spotless bride of Christ given to the husband who died for her. That is the judgment that Paul is looking forward to. He's not subjecting himself to any kind of human or worldly or cultural judgment. It's about appearing before Jesus with his bride. And so in the meantime, with this day in mind, Paul watches over the church with sleepless jealousy. Our translation says godly jealousy, but it could be translated the jealousy of God himself, with God's own passion for his people. God's own passion over his potentially wayward people, as we know from the Old Testament. The father of the bride was the one responsible for guarding his daughter from sexual predators, people who would seek to take advantage of her and to destroy her. And to Paul's alarm, in his absence, a seductive voice has appeared in the congregation and is whispering sweet lies into the ear of the church. A voice that to Paul has a bit of a hiss to it. A voice that reminds him of that belonging to the forked tongue of the serpent coming to innocent Innocent Eve in the garden and corrupting her from her innocence and leading her to disaster. Paul had left this church in a state of sincere and pure devotion to Christ, a state of open communication, total love, total trust, no shadows at all between the church and Jesus. I hope you can say that of yourself today. What a wonderful thing to say of yourself in all honesty and humility before God. I'm sitting here today in a state of sincere and pure devotion to Christ, a relationship just as God wants me to have with his son. And of course, whenever the evil one sees that purity, sees that sincere love, sees that open relationship, it enrages and infuriates him, and he wants to do whatever he can to, dis to destroy and to disrupt that relationship, to corrupt it. And now these Corinthian minds are being corrupted and seduced and led astray by a seductive, smooth voice whispering in their ear. And honestly, Paul, Paul has to confess that he's shocked at how easily the Corinthians have been seduced 
and led astray. Verse 4, for someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus that we preached, or if you receive a different, gospel, a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Amazing. I was the one who preached Jesus. I laid out my hands on these people. They received the spirit. They accepted the gospel. I thought it was all very clear in their minds and hearts. And hardly am I gone before they're embracing a substitute Jesus, a substitute spirit, and a substitute gospel. Notice, of course, these super apostles, these agents of the evil one, don't show up and say, Jesus, bad. Spirit, bad. Gospel, bad. Of course, they're not that obvious. They're much more subtle. When I was a little boy, when I was four years old, I would go by myself like a, a few, a house or two away from our own house, and I would pick blackberries from the bushes with my sister. And around this time in the early 1980s, there was, uh, there was all the serial killer scares and stuff in Vancouver. And someone showed up, pulled up alongside of me in a car, and they told me they were looking for their cat. They had lost their cat, and they asked me if I could come into the car and help them find their cat. Obviously, I didn't get into the car. I would not be standing here before you today. But I ran home, and I told my mom that I had talked to this person and, and, and what had happened. And she was quite dismayed and appalled that I'd even entered into conversation with this person. She said, Bart, we've had this conversation so many times with you. Stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. Why did you talk to this person? And I said, well, Mom, I asked him if he was a stranger, and he said no. <laughs> it's very important to define your terms, is it not? Of course, an evil stranger would not say, I'm a stranger and I'm here to do terrible things to you. It's a seductive deceptive voice. And no false teacher ever shows up in a church and says, I am from the devil, and I'm here to bring false doctrine into this church and to destroy your church forever. No false teacher arrives and says, Jesus bad, spirit bad, gospel bad, bow down and worship this goat instead. No one shows up and does that. Instead, these people have their own Jesus. They have their own spirit, and they have their own gospel. And they're very convincing knockoffs, if you don't look too closely. You know, at the church office, we have a knockoff copy of Settlers of Catan. Have any of you played that game there? And it looks pretty convincing. Like, they've printed the instructions on the board. You can it's until you get to the pieces. They're these really cheap, flimsy plastic pieces. They're not the nice, solid, wooden ones. Then you realize, okay, this is some cheap knockoff of the original Settlers. But with Settlers, it doesn't matter too much. You can still play the game. You know, you're just getting the same basic experience for quite a bit cheaper by buying the knockoff. But it's not like that with Jesus. It's like ordering a very expensive, rare, life-saving drug, and someone switched it out for a cheap, impotent knockoff, or ordering a very special piece for the space shuttle and something else gets sent instead, and it's not until far too late you realize a fatal switch has been made. 
There are many things, I suppose, in Christianity that are interchangeable, that you can do without or replace with something else. Certainly, all of us human beings and ministers and agents of Jesus are replaceable by Jesus. But you know what's not replaceable? Christ himself, the Spirit himself, the gospel message of God. None of those things are replaceable. And Satan knows that if he can disconnect you from Jesus, if he can get you to accept a substitute spirit, if he can get you to swallow a false gospel, then he's cutting you off from the source of life itself. Notice that. Satan is very clear, even if Christians aren't, about what's important in the church. The Son of God, the Spirit of God, the Gospel of God. He goes for those things right away. Because the evil one, the destroyer of our souls, the enemy of humankind, he knows that as long as you're close to Jesus, you are untouchable. He can harass you, he can threaten you, he can oppress you, but he cannot touch a hair of your head. But the instant you step away from Jesus and strike out on your own, the game is basically over. You're in the woods by yourself, and you might as well be dead already. Satan's first step always is to separate you from Jesus. And of course, he's got 20, 30, 50 ways of doing that, but it's always about separating you from Jesus, always about disconnecting you from the Spirit, always about getting you to wander from the gospel. Not that the super apostles would admit this. These men, these women are very smooth talkers. Ah, it goes down so nicely, the teachings of these people. And by comparison, as Paul freely admits in verse 6, he's untrained in the art of rhetoric. Paul's not saying that he's an unskilled, clumsy, embarrassing speaker. Paul obviously can put an argument together and speak passionately when he needs to, but Paul has never taken the time to master the art of Greek rhetoric. And that was like at the top of the academic and professional world. And practitioners of rhetoric would spend hours every day practicing and memorizing hundreds of techniques that they could use for persuasive speech. It was all about wielding the art of persuasion. And really, is there a greater power than being able to convince people to feel things, to desire things, to believe things, to do things, things that you want them to do? And you use your smooth, smooth words and your very cleverly constructed arguments to funnel these people into doing, believing, feeling, 
desiring what you want. Obviously, the super apostles were highly qualified in this art. And they seem to have been convincing the church in comparison to ourselves. Isn't Paul a little worn around the edges? Isn't Paul a little prosaic, a little unprofessional, a little, a little boring? And now you have an opportunity to upgrade from the ordinary Apostle 1.0 to the super Apostle 2.0. Surely you would want to level up a little bit in what your church deserves me. Paul has no time for this kind of garbage. I may be untrained as a speaker, he says, but I do have knowledge. My words may not be smooth and oily, but I actually kind of know what I'm talking about, unlike these guys over here. Yeah, I have knowledge. I have the knowledge that counts. I know Jesus. I know his spirit. I know his gospel. So I don't need to go on YouTube to watch videos about how to manipulate people's emotions and feelings and desires. I simply proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I do not need human wisdom, human power, and human eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Because I know if anything real is going to happen, it can't be me. It must be the spirit of the crucified and risen Jesus. It must be the power of the gospel that invades people's hearts and makes them new men and women, that makes them sons and daughters of God. And no amount of rhetoric or persuasion or marketing or advertising can raise anyone from the dead. Only the risen Jesus can do that. I preach Christ and him crucified. But it seems like for the Corinthians that that was a little too, too simple for their tastes. Their tastes were becoming much more sophisticated. The simple manna falling from heaven was no longer enough for them. They hungered for strange meats, for new ideas and ways of presenting the gospel. And Paul's plainness, his severity, his preaching of the cross was becoming quite off-putting, as was Paul's very embarrassing and annoying habit of refusing financial gifts from people. I mean, what is up with that? Now, you have to understand that Corinthian culture, like, like all of Greco-Roman culture, operated on a very tight web of what they called patron-client relationships. And that meant... If you were wealthy, if you had resources and money and relationships, you would 
disburse them to people who were below you on the social ladder, and they would benefit from your, your gifts. And in return for your gifts, which they were too poor to afford, they would respond with praise, with thanksgiving, with flattery, with honor. And there was nothing people valued more than honor. That's the way the entire culture worked. And philosophers who walked around and gave out wisdom, that's how they supported themselves mostly. And it seems like the super apostles obviously had no qualms in collecting cash from people in exchange for their teaching. That's just how the society worked. But Paul knows. He knows this church. He knows the city. He knows this culture. And he knows the instant he accepts a single tetri from anyone in the Corinthian church, the whole relationship is going to change. He's no longer going to be Christ's free agent. He's going to be bound to people. He's going to be entangled in this whole web of obligation. And people who have positioned themselves as the wealthy benefactor supporting Paul, they're going to assume very naturally that now Paul is in their back pocket and they own this guy. Remember, this is a church with a lot of division and a lot of tension. And so someone on one side gives a gift to Paul. Here's a new car for you. Here's an apartment so you can stay. Here's some gift certificates so you can get some food for yourself. As soon as Paul accepts that, and there's a conflict, this person is going to expect Paul to now be his advocate in the conflict because he's basically bought the apostle. He's bought him for Paul's team. Now, it must have been very tempting for Paul to accept money from this church for himself because this is one of the very wealthiest churches in the Mediterranean. There's a lot of cash flowing in and out of this church. But Paul knows the cultural tendencies. He knows where these people are coming from, and he knows as soon as I do this, it's going to backfire on me. It'll be bad for, for, for Paul, and it'll be bad for the whole church. It'll just corrupt the entire relationship. Now, Paul is willing to accept support from other congregations after he leaves them, including much poorer congregations like the congregation in Macedonia, the church in Philippi. Paul allows them to become partners in the gospel with them, and they're the ones, this poor church, actually fronting the bill for Paul to stay in this expensive city, in this rich church. And when they can't quite, you know, make the donations that Paul needs to live on, he doesn't ask anyone in the church for money. He insists on doing manual labor to support himself. Now, in this culture, manual labor was considered demeaning. That was the work of a slave. A philosopher, if he couldn't get patronage, he would beg before he worked. Begging was actually above working. If you started working, your parents would be like, but honey, have you really, tried, have you really given begging a chance? Because that would be less shameful for our family for you to stand there with your hat out than to actually pick up a broom or a shovel and get to work. And lo and behold, one of the members in the church in Corinth takes a shortcut down a back alley and he glances to his left and there's Paul in a workyard sitting cross-legged on the ground cutting and stitching leather. 
And you can imagine the person was horrified, and the whole church was horrified and embarrassed and offended that Paul was demeaning himself, and by consequence, everyone he was associated with, instead of just doing the straightforward thing and taking the money that everyone was trying to press into his hands. And now Paul is reflecting badly on the church in the surrounding culture. And the super apostles seem to have slid in there and said, you know what, yeah, this is offensive. And it's suspicious, isn't it? Why won't Paul just take your payment like an honest person? What's his game? What's Paul getting at? Why won't he just accept payment like an honest person? Or does Paul perhaps think that he's too good for your money? Why is he rejecting your gift? What's the guy's problem? And so something Paul had done out of love for Jesus and out of love for the Corinthians, by the time the slanderers finished twisting it, it's come out the other end as something evil and ugly. But Paul is not doing this out of bad motives. It's not out of pride because he refuses to let anyone support him. It's for the sake of the gospel. I'm humbling myself. I humbled myself so that you might be exalted, verse 7. Just like Jesus in Philippians 2 takes on the form of a servant and goes down to the very lowest place, he insists, you will not wash my feet, I will wash your feet. I will be among you as one who serves. Paul's doing the same thing. And Paul insists, he absolutely insists on preaching the gospel free of charge. Verse 7 again. You ever ordered a package online on eBay or something, and it was an amazing deal. You couldn't believe how cheap it was. It was almost free, and you ordered it, but you didn't look carefully at what you were actually signing up for, and it turned out there was a massive shipping charge tacked on to this 99-cent item on which they made a huge profit and ripped you off. Paul does not want to offer a free gospel with a massive shipping charge for the apostle that would totally negate the freedom of God's gift to humanity. No charge for gospel delivery is the principle that Paul lived by. You know, there was another reason, too. I think all the Corinthians craved the powerful role of the patron. I want to be the guy with the huge piggy bank, with the massive bank account, with the enormous mansion, and I want people to come to me, people who have messed up their own lives with their bad decisions, to be quite honest, and they're desperate, and I, they come to me as the Savior, and I'm the one with my incredible, lavish resources. I'm the one who gives them money, and I change their lives, and they're so grateful to me, and they sing my praises all over the city. Oh, they're just so pathetically grateful, and man, Charity feels really good. All of us naturally love that rule. That's why it feels good to help other people, because we're really feeling good about ourselves. It's much harder to take the humble rule of the beggar, the one who comes with nothing, and humbles himself and opens his hand and says, I'm so needy. I'm so hungry. 
I am so thirsty and I have nothing. Please have mercy on me. None of us want to be put in that position. But that is the position of receiving Jesus, of receiving God's free gift of the gospel. And Paul knew for the sake of these Corinthians who frustrated him, but he loved so much, they needed to learn the joy of simply receiving God's gift. To realize the humble role of the dependent is the place of blessing. And if we insist on only being the benefactor who gives and who never opens ourselves up to receive, we're locking ourselves away from the love of God. Paul wants them to understand, and he wants us to understand this afternoon, that before God, none of us are in the powerful role of the benefactor. We're all in the humble role of the, one who's, of the people who stand in complete need of God's generosity in the gospel, where he gives us his son, he gives us his spirit, and he lavishes us with love and grace and acceptance and life far beyond what we could even begin to repay. That's why Paul does not accept money in Corinth for himself. Oh yeah, he'll spend two chapters appealing to them to give to the poor in Jerusalem, but for himself, not a single penny for Paul so that the purity of the gospel and the freedom of the gospel is not undermined. You know, Paul's been very insistent on this because he wants to undercut the claims of the false apostles, the super apostles, and expose these guys and these women, for all I know, for what they really are. Power-seeking, money-grubbing flatterers who are manipulating and massaging the Corinthians, not out of love for them, not to bless them and to care for them, but to get out of them the things they want for themselves. Money, status, power. And they're leading the Corinthians away from Jesus to destruction. And because they're doing that, Paul has no qualms about exposing them for who they are. False apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, just like Satan pretends to be an angel of light. Of course, Satan rarely appears to us as Satan. He appears in much more pleasant clothing. He massages our ego. Oh, that feels good when you say that, Satan. He cultivates our worst instincts. He appeals to our vanity, all to corrupt and to destroy us. The French writer C. A. Lapide tells a story about a hermit named Abraham. And he says, well, Abraham was singing psalms at midnight, a light like that of the sun suddenly shone in his cell, and a voice was heard saying, Blessed art thou, Abraham. None is like thee in fulfilling all my will. Perhaps you've heard this voice when you've been praying and worshiping. Oh, there's no one like you. What an amazing Christian you are. God sure is lucky to have you on his team. But the humility of the saints recognized the fraud of the devil. And Abraham exclaimed, Thy darkness perish with thee, thou fool of all fraud and falsehood, for I am a sinful man. 
but the name of my Lord, Jesus Christ, whom I have loved and do love, is a wall to me, and in it I rebuke thee, thou unclean dog. And then the devil vanished from his sight as smoke. Satan is unsleeping, untiring, unceasing in his quest to divide you from Jesus, to separate you from your Savior, to pry you away from the side of the Good Shepherd so that we can share in the same doom as the devil and his angels and all his servants, eternal destruction and separation from the love of God. Sure, sometimes it's a full-scale frontal assault, the disguise thrown off where he tries to terrify and frighten us, but more often, it's the subtle seduction, the oblique move from the side or from behind to lead us away from Jesus. Let's ask ourselves today, are we being tempted by a different Jesus? Are we considering a counterfeit spirit? Are we weighing an alternate gospel, one that is more exciting, more inspirational, more appealing, because it tells us, you don't have to take up your cross. You don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to leave your sin. It's all affirmation and a warm embrace with no prophetic challenge to repent and follow Jesus. A false call from a false shepherd that invites us not to deny our idolatry and find life, but to fulfill the worst cravings of our souls and find death. Christ is our life. Christ is our life. And if we wander from him, we will be lost forever. Let us bind ourselves today more firmly to Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus we know through his word, the Jesus we know through prayer, the Jesus we know in loving the brethren, the Jesus we know in following him in obedience as his disciple. Jesus may offer the harsh path of the cross, but he offers us something more profoundly satisfying, more beautiful than anything the evil one can seduce us with. Not with money, with power, with status. Jesus is not offering you a better way to achieve those things the devil is already offering. He's offering you the love of God. He's offering you the possibility to stand before the uncreated light and behold the beauty of your creator and to hear his voice, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Satan can offer no convincing counterfeit for that. We're going to celebrate communion in a few moments. And this is a meal 
where Jesus, who comes and is present with his people, calls us from the false self that the world and the flesh and the devil want to impose on us. He calls us from our false selves and into our true life in God, where we are known, where we are loved, where we belong forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your kind words of warning. And we ask that by your grace, you would not allow us to be seduced by whatever deceptions the evil one is planning right now. And because we belong to you, we know that we have an enemy who hates us, who's come to kill, to steal, to destroy. He wants to ruin our lives and to destroy our faith. And we are, we are small, we are weak, we are foolish, O oh Lord, and we are unable to fight against him in our own power, and it would be reckless for us to try. But we look to you, Father. We look to your Son. We look to your Spirit. We put our hope in your gospel, and we cling very close to our Good Shepherd. Lord, help us to receive afresh the freedom of the grace of the gospel to come in the safest place we can be, a place of beggars, the most honorable place we can take, the place of beggars. Because when we come to you and say, Lord, I do not deserve any of this, you take us by the hand, you raise us up, you put the ring on our finger, the robe around our back, you kill the, slaughter, you kill the fatted calf for us, and you say, no, my son, my daughter, feast with us today. For this, my son, my daughter, who is lost, has been found again, and the house is filled with joy. In your great name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.